All right, Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. We were so blessed to have Dr. Rich Freeman last week come and share with us, but excited to get back into Ephesians this morning. We remember that the theme of the book of Ephesians is walking in the riches of God's grace. And in order to conduct our lives in light of those riches of God's grace, we need to understand their extent. And so Paul has been laying out God's blessings one by one in these first few chapters of the book of Ephesians. And so we looked at two weeks ago, one of the blessings we have in Christ is that He is our peace. Specifically, we were looking in verses 11 through 15 where it shows how Jesus is our peace with one another, that Jesus broke down every wall that separates people groups in society when He created this thing called the church. And so this morning, as we pick it up in verse 16, Paul is going to explain how Jesus is also not just our peace with one another, but He is our peace between us and the Father. So chapter 2 of Ephesians, I'm going to start reading in verse 11, but we'll pick up the study in verse 16. Wherefore, Paul says in verse 11, remember that you, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, what do they need to remember? Remember that at that time you were without Christ, being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, now that you're saved, now that you've placed your trust in Christ, You who sometimes were far off, at some point in our lives we were all far away from God, we are now made near by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace, who has made both one, both Jew and Gentile one. He broke down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Why did He do that? For to make in Himself of twain, those two, one new man, and so making peace." to create this new entity called a Christian, and to create this new family called the body of Christ. So verse 16, and, so not only did he do it for that purpose, but he not only did he bring us together, but that he also might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father." And so here we see the second part of this idea that Jesus is our peace. Not only did he bring us together, but he reestablished a relationship between God and human beings. And the first way Jesus did that is by paying for everyone's sin on the cross. It says that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. In addition to repairing our relationship with one another, he reconciled us to God. Now, the word reconcile there, it means to reestablish friendly relations after they've been disrupted or broken. All of us, because of sin, have had our relationship with God was busted. It was broken. It was disrupted. And, And it's not just that Jesus brought us into a place where we are tolerated. I'm sure none of you would ever have this attitude towards a friend, but maybe you have. Maybe you've had a friend that you kind of tolerated. It's not that they came around and you got excited. They came around and you thought, okay, I guess this is what we're doing today. That was some uncomfortable laughter. (laughs) Well, even though you've probably never done that before, never thought of a person that way before, let me assure you God doesn't think of us that way. 
Jesus restored friendly relations between us and the Father. He did it for both, it says, that he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile unto God in one body by the cross. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, every single person, regardless of ethnicity, nationality, or skin color, every person who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus is placed into the church of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus eradicates our separation from God because of our sin. And so because God has now forgiven us, he has no more claim. He lays it aside, any claim to justice for our sin. And so through the cross of Christ, God has reestablished a proper relationship with us, a friendly relationship with us, one where he's for us, not just one where he tolerates us. And as a result, he has slain the enmity through the cross, thereby, by the same means, by the cross, he has eliminated and he has done away with any enmity that we can have towards one another now that we're in Christ. Now, some might say, yeah, but this person, they're part of this social group or this cultural group or this ethnic group, and, and they can't change the things that have been instilled in them from birth, to which I would say, do we believe in the life-changing power of the cross or not? Do we believe in the life-changing power of the cross or not? I do. And I do so because the Bible teaches so. And if the Bible teaches so, then it doesn't matter what anyone else says about the topic when they contradict what the Bible says. I don't care how much research they've done. I don't care how many degrees they have. I don't care how many Nobel Peace Prizes they've won. The Bible teaches that we can be changed. And we've been placed into the body of Christ. So Jesus reestablished a relationship between God and human beings, number one, by paying for every person's sins on the cross. Secondly, verse 17, by inviting everyone to come. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. This idea of came is actually, it latches on to what he did for us on the cross, having come. Not that he did it after the cross, but having come through the incarnation and all that Jesus accomplished, his life, his death, his resurrection, he preached peace to you who were afar off, the Gentile, and to you who were near the Israelite. Jesus came and he announced the good news of peace to everyone. Let me ask you a question. What was the message you heard that put you on the path to repenting of your sins and trusting Jesus? I bet the message was the same in this room, no matter what your background was, no matter what your skin color was, and no matter what your nationality was. I bet the message was the same, no matter how much you knew about God and his law before you heard the message or didn't. All of us heard the same good news that you could have a relationship with God. The good news that God was angry at you because of your sin, but he loved you enough to die for your sin. The good news that you deserve judgment, but God had made a way for you to be rescued from it. That's how all of us came to Christ. We all heard the same message. You have that in common with every other believer in this building and in buildings all across the globe. And you have that in common with every other believer in Christ, whether or not you look the same or speak the same or can even understand each other. All of us were invited with the same message and on the same terms. So 
He made peace between us and God by the cross, by inviting everyone to come, by paying for everyone's sin on the cross, by inviting everyone to come, and thirdly, by giving everyone access to the Father. Look at verse 18. For through Him, by means of Him, by means of what Jesus did for us on the cross, by means of this invitation, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. That word have, it means to presently possess. Listen, you don't need to do anything to earn this access to the Father. It's yours the moment you repent of your sins and you place your trust in Jesus. You don't have to achieve some level or status to get access to the Father. Now, what does it mean to have access? Well, the word access here, it just simply means that you have the right to address someone who has a higher status than you. Right to address someone who has a higher status than you. There are many people that I do not have the right to address. I can't just go and walk up to anybody and address them. In fact, I dared say there are many places that are closed off to me just walking in to address them however I please. But this idea that we have access to the Father, that we have the right to address the Father, it's more than just the freedom to come. It's the concept of being introduced to someone you would never get an audience with on your own. It's the concept of being ushered into someone's presence when you would never normally be welcomed. Before we were in Christ, we would have never gotten an audience with God. Never. Not in our own righteousness. But when we placed our trust in Jesus, someone introduced us to God's throne room, not just as someone tolerated, but as his welcomed guest. It says we were all introduced, ushered, into the Father's presence by one Spirit. That's cool. Because it means that Jews and Gentiles weren't ushered into God's presence by different people. It's not like if you were Jewish, you got the Holy Spirit, and if you were a Gentile, well, you got like John. It's not like Peter showed up and he's like, hey, I know it's just me, but you're a Gentile, so let's do this. No. The Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, is the one who ushers every single believer into the Father's presence. And that means that God is my Father in the same way that He is your Father if you're in Christ. There's no difference in status. I don't get extra status because I'm a Gentile. I don't get extra status because I'm, I'm Jewish. I don't get extra status if I'm any other ethnicity. Now, we do need to pause here for a moment. So just hold on to that thought. But we do need to pause here a moment to point out that the Godhead is explained here with this visual, in a visual way. We have Jesus who is purchasing our access through his death on the cross. We have the Holy Spirit who is ushering us into the Father's presence, and the Father is the one that we have been given access to. The Bible teaches a triune God. Do not let anyone ever tell you that the Bible does not. The Bible teaches a triune God, and we see it in a wonderful visual here. Now, what is the blessing of having access to the Father, being ushered in as, as His welcomed guest? What's the big deal? Well, some other scriptures shed some light on this. In Romans chapter 5, verse 2, it tells us in verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom, by Jesus, we also have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, it's the first thing. And secondly, rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 tells us the same thing or similar. Therefore, let us come boldly before his throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace to help in our time of need, right? Very similar. We have access to the grace wherein we stand. Let me ask you something this morning. Do you need mercy and grace to help when you have a time of need? I do. (laughs) I sure do. I need mercy and grace to help when I'm in a time of need. And do you need to rejoice in hope of the glory of God? Do you need the joy of knowing we win in the end? Yeah, I need that too. I need that too. So why is it so often we try to find help within ourselves? And why is it so often we try to find hope from the circumstances around us? I don't remember the year it was done. It was many years ago. They did a Barna poll, research poll, and they polled a bunch of Christians and said, what's your favorite Bible verse? And one of the top like five verses was, God helps those who help themselves. It's not only not in the Bible, it's not biblical. It's antichrist. God helps those who can't help themselves. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And yet, so very often, what do we do in our time of need? I've got to get back together. I've got to get back together so I can go to God. That's not what the Bible teaches us. Just run to your heavenly Father. He's our help in time of need. Amen? And this other part, the rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Man, I, all it takes is one news article, and I, I see so many Christians, their joy is just shot. Just shot. Oh, the president said what? Or this happened over here. Or this happened over here. Life's horrible. Guys, we win in the end. Who cares? Do what you want. I mean, think about it. How are you, if you are Polycarp and you're running from the Romans and all of a sudden you're up on the rooftop and the Lord's like, hey, you're not going to get away this time. What do you do at that moment in time? Oh, that's it. It's over. No, you know what the guy does? As the soldiers come to arrest him at the house, he hears the kind of the commotion downstairs and he comes down and he says, guys, guys, let him in. Feed him. Feed him. And there he has a meal with the very soldiers who are going to lead him off to his trial and his execution where he was going to be burned alive. Because it didn't matter. Do whatever you want. I win in the end. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I don't need to look around me to find joy. That's how we did things before we were in Christ. Part of the blessing of Jesus being our peace is we don't have to do that anymore. We have access to the one who has amazing love, unlimited resources, and all the power to implement those resources. And that's far superior than how we used to do life, isn't it? So Jesus, he reconciled us. He restored us to a a right relationship with his father, a friendly relationship with his father by dying for everyone's sin on the cross, by inviting everyone to the father, and by giving everyone who comes access to the father. And so that results in this amazing new thing. Now that we're right with God, we are part of God's family. And so in chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, it says, now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also 
are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Listen, being right with God, it means all of us now belong to a new group. Whatever group you came from before, you now belong to a new group. You're part of the family of God. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners. A stranger here means an alien, someone who has a different quality or nature than everyone else around them. That's not you anymore. That's who you were, but that's not you. And you're not a foreigner either. A foreigner means someone who makes their home in a place, but they're not a citizen. No. That's who we were before we were in Christ. The Lord made this world, but by choosing to be children of disobedience, both Jews and Gentiles became unworthy to inherit this world. We were like alien parasites living in the world God made, but not as citizens. That was our status before we were in Christ. But once we are in Christ, that status changes. In contrast, we're the total opposite. Now it says you are fellow citizens with the saints. With every believer that's gone before you, you're a fellow citizen with them. And you're a member of God's family. You're part of the household of God. Listen, Think of someone in the church you admire, whether they're from the Bible or from church history or even from present day. Your status in the family of God is no less, no different than theirs. None at all. The church is one big family, God's family. And you're a part of that if you're in Christ. So often the enemy comes to us with that lie, oh, you'll never be like them. Man, when I was at Bible college and you start reading about all these amazing men and women of the faith throughout history, you know, and you read about them getting up at 4 a.m. and they're going to pray for three hours and stuff. And, you know, here I am, I'm like, set my alarm for 4 a.m., hit snooze seven times, barely get 15 minutes in with Jesus. And then, you, you know, you show up to the next class, and you're like, I, I can't use me. I can never be like these guys. The enemy says, your story will be different. You're different. Your story will end in disappointment. Don't believe that. Don't believe that. You're his son or you're his daughter, and you already have a place in his home. You already have a place in his home, and he's going to finish what he started in you. He's going to finish what he started in you. You have a new home with a new foundation. Look at verse 20. And you are built upon, this is the new home you're a part of, it's built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, the idea of you are built upon, it's actually the idea of something that's, that's already been accomplished, having been built upon. You've been made part of the family of God, having been built upon this foundation that comes from the apostles and the prophets. Now, the way that I, I said that comes from is because the way that this is worded in the original language is it's not meant to indicate that the apostles and prophets are the foundation. It's, it indicates that the foundation was built by them. It was laid down by them. So what foundation did the apostles and the prophets lay down in the church? Well, we know who the apostles are. The apostles were the, the 12 guys that Jesus chose. And then, of course, we see that there were others that the Lord raised up in the book of Acts who were there to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection, right? So we know who those are. Who are the prophets? Well, since the church did not exist in the Old Testament, there was no foundation laid yet. So the prophets here cannot be the Old Testament prophets. I do believe they're part of the foundation, but that's not specifically what's in mind here. So who are the New Testament prophets? Well, the New Testament prophets are those who gave us the New Testament. 
They're the ones that God inspired to write the New Testament Scriptures. Now, that's interesting because who's the other group that did that? The apostles. The apostles and the prophets laid down the Scriptures for us. So when we ask the question, what foundation did the apostles and prophets lay down in the church, the only possible answer is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. They gave us the New Testament Scriptures. I bring this up because there is a view out there called apostolic succession. And that view teaches that the original apostles were the foundation of the church. And so they passed on their foundation because they passed on their position and authority to others before they died. And so then their successors repeated that process, and their successors repeated that process all the way down to today. And so they would say that any Christian group who doesn't follow whoever these modern-day apostles and prophets are, that you have no foundation. You have no foundation. I remember we had a coworker of ours, me and a buddy of mine, he's, he's a pastor now as well, but we were working at Chick-fil-A over there in Winter Park, and, and we were sharing the gospel with this Mormon lady, and she got saved. And as she's trying to pull out of this group, they start sending people to my house to talk me down you know, and explain why I'm off and to tell me how to get right so I don't lead this young lady astray. So the first off, they send the, you know, the guys on the bicycles, the really pleasant guys, nice guys, really friendly. I've never, ever had a nasty discussion with a Mormon who came to my door like that. Never. They're usually very friendly. And so they came, and of course, they didn't get anywhere with me, and so they had to start calling in the big guns. And so they sent two bishops to come to our house. Now, you ever get a bishop coming to your house, they're not going to be nice to you, all right? There's a reason they call places like this a cult, all right? You leave Calvary Chapel, Orlando. I don't want you to go. I don't want anybody to go. We love all of you. You're all important part here, and I want you all to stay. But if you sense the Lord was calling you somewhere else to another Bible teaching church, we will say we will miss you. We love you. God bless you. If you try to leave the Mormon church, they're not going to say, praise the Lord. We love you. We miss you. God bless you. They're going to dig their claws in and try to keep you from leaving. They would send people to our workplace to pester her. They would have people call up saying it was a family member when it was her. And I remember she came to us at one point. She's like, I'm trying to get out and I can't. I said, yeah, that's why it's called a cult. They don't let go. Anyway, long story short, they sent these two guys to my house. And here I am trying to have a nice conversation with them, explain the scripture to them. And I got these two guys in my own home in front of my family standing over me as I'm sitting on the couch, pointing at me, yelling at me, you have no foundation because I don't follow modern-day apostles and prophets. Paul did not teach that. He did not teach that doctrine. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 with me. And we're going to camp here just for a little bit while we're moving through Ephesians 2.20. What does the Bible say about apostles and prophets? What does the Bible say about our foundation? Well, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 10. Paul's been speaking about the ministry, the different people who were working in the ministry and how, you know, they may have different roles, but it's God who gives the increase. But getting down to verse 10, though, he explains his role as an apostle. He says, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me. In other words, the gifting of God. The word for grace is just the, the shortest way you can say gift, okay? That's why we say grace is God's unmerited favor or God's free gift. He says, according to the grace which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereon. 
Listen, Paul the Apostle cannot be the foundation if he's the one laying down the foundation. And if the men who came after Paul were supposed to build on top of the foundation he laid, well then, I guess that means that Paul's role as an apostle can be absent from the scene and the foundation remained intact if other people can build on what he finished laying down. So what foundation did Paul build? Well, he preached the gospel. Look at verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The gospel. Not only did Paul preach Jesus Christ, but he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. That's the foundation that he and the other New Testament writers built. They laid down the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they taught us the Word of God. We already know that the Old Testament had that place in our lives, so now we have this New Testament that came alongside of it. And so it's the Word of God that is our foundation that's been laid down by these individuals. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that is our foundation. And so it doesn't surprise us when we flip back, again, keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 3, but when we flip back to Ephesians 2.20, the very next thing Paul says is that Jesus himself was the chief cornerstone. That word chief cornerstone, it's all one word in the original language, and it refers to the primary foundation stone by which when the architect is building, he fixes that. That's his standard for the rest of the structure. Everything else connects with that. Everything else is built around that. Jesus is the first and most important stone in the church's foundation, and the rest of the foundation is constructed around him via the teaching of God's word. And so, how does a church grow? How is the church built up? It's not built up by keep building the foundation. We need more scripture. We've already got scripture. The church is built up on top of the foundation by teaching the gospel and teaching the scriptures that God's prophets and God's apostles gave to us. That's how the church is strengthened. And so that's why when you come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul can say this. Now, I'd laid the foundation. I gave you the word of God, gave you the gospel. Now, you're going to build on top of that. The people come after me, they're going to build on top of that. They don't need to keep building the foundation. That's done. You build on top of that. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be revealed. So the idea here is you can build on top of this settled forever foundation of the scripture, lots of different things. You can build precious things and you can build worthless things. And in that day, every man's work shall be revealed, which one you build on top of it. For the day shall declare it. When we stand before the Lord and to be rewarded, the day will declare it. What did you build on top of it? Did you build something that wouldn't last? Did you build something out of the flesh? Did you build something that wasn't focused on the glory of God? Did you build something for yourself? Wood, hay, and stubble. Did you build something precious that will last forever? Did you build the scriptures? Did you build truth? Did you build the glory of God? Well, the fire shall try every man's work to see what sort it is. Verse 14, if any man's work abide, which he has built thereon, after the fire comes, if it remains, well, then you get a reward. If any man's work shall be burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Those are all plurals there. I understand we use this verse sometimes to refer to how we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's true that individually we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the church. 
If any man defile the temple of God, the church of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye, plural, are. One defiles God's building, the family of God, the church, by not teaching the scriptures, by leading his people astray from the word of God. And those who are rewarded for their service build up the church by building on top of the foundation, by preaching the gospel, by teaching the scriptures. That is the consistent testimony of Scripture when you look at the idea of foundation. Do a word study on the word foundation in the New Testament. You'll find two topics. The foundation of the world, which is a whole different topic we're not going to get into today, or this. Those are the only two ways that word is used in the New Testament. We look here in Matthew chapter 16 when Peter made his great confession at Caesarea Philippi. Remember when Jesus said, whom do men say that I am? And then the disciples would say, well, some people say you're Jeremiah or John the Baptist or one of the other prophets. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? What's your, what are your thoughts on this? And Peter makes that great confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the gospel, isn't it? Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. I love he takes Peter down a notch. For flesh and blood is not revealed unto you, but my father, which is in heaven. You didn't figure that out on your own. Don't get a big head, Peter. But I love what Jesus says next. He says, and I say unto you also that you are Peter, little pebble. You're Peter, little pebble. But upon this rock, Petros, little pebble, rock Petra, big, huge fortress. He says, on that rock, what rock? Your confession, the gospel. Upon that, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee, plural, you, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, not just Peter, but all believers. And whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Every person who confesses faith in Christ like Peter did has the wonderful privilege of opening the gates of the family of God to a person when you share the gospel with them. Isn't that awesome? You have that wonderful privilege. If you're in Christ, every time, anytime you share the gospel with somebody, you are opening the gates to the family of God to them. Luke 6 is another place where Jesus mentions this idea of a foundation, building on top of it. In Luke 6, at the end of this sermon, it's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the Sermon on the Mount, but it's very similar. They happen in different places and at different times, so they're not the same sermon. Jesus had similar sermons that he preached. So it's okay if I tell a story and you've heard it 17 times. But in Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built a house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, and the stream beat vehemently against that house, and could not shake it, for it was founded, founded upon a rock. In contrast, he that hears and does not, doesn't, hears what I say and doesn't put it into practice, doesn't apply it to their lives, were like a man without a foundation. He built a house upon the earth, and against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great." We as believers, all of us, we become stronger. We are built up by learning what God's Word says and by choosing to apply it to our lives. This is the foundation. It's consistently all throughout the Scripture. It's the Word of God. 
That's what they laid down for us. Now, because their job was to finish that foundation and our job is to build on top of it, there is no need for the office of apostle or prophet today. There is no need for those offices of ministry. Therefore, no person has the office of an apostle or prophet today. Scripture's still not being written. It's complete. Some people say, well, why do we hear about apostles and prophets today? Why do people call themselves apostles and prophets today? I don't know. They should read their Bible. But I can call myself something. It doesn't make me something. One of the requirements to be an apostle is found in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. Look it up in your own time. There are two things. You need to have been present to hear Jesus teaching during his earthly ministry, and you need to have seen him risen from the dead. There is no one. Some of y'all might be old, but you ain't that old. There is no one who meets those two requirements today. There can be no modern-day apostles. Now, because those who are in Christ have this new foundation in the gospel and, and in God's Word, it means that every believer, we're now part of God's family, we have a new purpose. So verses 21 and 22 explains it. It says, in whom, so Christ, our chief cornerstone, the one who's made peace between us and God, who's made us a part of God's family, it says, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows. So all the building fitly framed together is something that's already happened. Grows is the part that's ongoing. We have a foundation. We've been fitly framed together. What does that mean? All the building means all the entire structure. Fitly framed, it means has been fit or joined together, like Legos, right? You've been snapped into place together, you know, right? And maybe you might be saying, well, I didn't want to be snapped next to a green Lego. Well, tough. <laughs> Jesus has taken Jew and Gentile, and he has put them together in him in such a way that every believer is a necessary and important part of the structure. Every believer is a necessary part of God's family. Necessary to accomplish what? Well, that's what it says. We've been fit together. Why? That we might grow unto a holy temple in the Lord. The word grow means to increase, to spread, or extend. Into what? Well, the word here for temple is the word for the holy of holies in the New Testament. It's not just the temple building or the temple mount or the place of sacrifice. It's the holy place. So, through Christ, the entire structure, every believer has been joined together for the purpose of what? For increasing into a holy of holies in the Lord. The word for in there, it means to be in union with the Lord. What did Jesus do when he died on the cross? You know what I love the Bible tells us? When it says that the veil was torn, it says it was ripped from top to bottom. And it was a big curtain, right? There was no dude who could get up to the top. That was Herod's temple at that point in time, and it was very ornate. That curtain went way up into the air, much taller than the specifications that were given in Scripture. And Jesus tore it top to bottom. He's the one who tore it so that we could enter in, that He could enter into us, that we might be in union with Him, we might be close to Him, joined with Him. And so that means when people encounter you or people encounter us collectively, they should sense something different. 
something supernatural, the Lord's presence, our closeness with Him. In whom, verse 22 says, in Christ, you are also builded together for a habitation of God through the Holy Spirit. A habitation means a home where someone lives, a place where someone exists. That phrase, are being built together, it's in the present tense. It means we are continually, right now, being built up together into a home for the Lord. Because the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us the moment we get saved. Every Christian, whether you're a Jew, you're a Gentile, or any other label mankind can give to you, every one of us is like a traveling holy of holies. Now, I know you might hear me say that, and you think, ooh, that... That even almost sounds sacrilegious, Will. I get it. Knowing who I am, knowing what I think and do sometimes, it can be a real struggle to believe this truth. I think I'm not holy, God. I'm, I'm dirty. You shouldn't live inside me. I will taint you somehow. I will taint this thing you're trying to do somehow. But that's the wonder of being in Christ. You've been washed clean. Jesus made peace between you and the Father. You've been made an acceptable vessel for his presence. And you don't earn more of that. It's yours in Christ. Now, if, and we believe yes, he has, if Jesus has done that for every single believer, and every believer is an important part in the church, then I cannot say to a brother or sister, I don't need you. I can't say that. Or I'm fine without you. I can't say that. Nor can I say in my heart, my fellow believers don't need me, I'm not important. Neither of those statements are things that should ever come out of our mouths as Christians. Paul declared in chapter 2, verse 10, that God has good works he's prepared for every believer to do. Do you believe that? That's what he says. He has good works that he's prepared for every believer to do that we might walk them out. We might actually do them. Therefore, all of us are a necessary part of God's family. And as we grow in Christ together, as we're all growing together, and people are sensing the presence of God in us as we are ministering to them, showing them something supernatural, showing them something different, then guess what? We will knock down hell gates and we will see his church expand to reach others for the kingdom. And that's our goal. That is what we've been called to do. We are ambassadors for Christ. We've been given the message, the word of reconciliation. We've been called to go out and knock down hell gates and take ground back from the enemy to win the lost. Let me ask you a question. You ever seen in, a, in any type, like a, a feature film or anything like that where they've got a battle scene, you ever seen somebody charging at the front of a line on a horse carrying a gate? There's a reason you don't. There's a reason they got a sharp pointy thing pointed at somebody or a big bludgeoning object to smash somebody with because a gate isn't an offensive weapon. It's not like I'm sitting here cowering in a corner and Satan's after me like, I got this gate, I'm going to smash you. Gates are a defensive mechanism. They are a defensive fortress-type mechanism. And we have been called like sheep amongst wolves to go out into the world, the highways and the byways, and to knock down those gates and bring the lost in. And if we become that habitation where we are growing in Him, we will expand out and knock down hell gates and win the lost.
That's who you are if you're in Christ. That's our destiny as a group of believers who are in Christ. It's what God wants to do. Doesn't matter who's in the White House or who's anywhere else. Doesn't matter what the culture says. Doesn't matter what the government says. Doesn't even matter what the church is saying half the time. That's our destiny because God loves sinners. He died for them then to prove it, which means He still loves them today and He still wants to save them today. And so my question for you this morning as we close out is, will you receive the blessing that Jesus is our peace, that he's your peace? Will you stop trying to be good enough for God? Stop trying to somehow earn your way to be used by him and will you just rest in what Jesus already did for you? And will you go out knowing who you are in Christ, resting in his finished work and share that great news with somebody else who needs to hear it? Amen. Let's all stand. Lord, what a tremendous thing to to know that we've been reconciled to you, that you've paid the price for our sins, you've invited us, and now you've ushered us as we have turned from our sin and put our trust in you, you've ushered us into the presence of your Father by your Spirit. Lord, we thank you for your work in our lives to make all that possible. Lord, we are a people who need mercy and grace to help. Lord, we are a people who need joy that comes only from knowing, Lord, that we win in the end, that our hope, our expectation is in the glory of God. We need to be different, Lord, because if we're not, we're not going to accomplish our purpose. You have brought us into the family, but you've kept us here as ambassadors, Lord. Lord, I thank Jesus of how you said, you know, I long for them to be with me. And yet, Lord, you keep us here because you haven't taken us out of the world yet. You're coming soon, and we look forward to that. But you haven't done it yet, which means we have a job to do. And so, Lord, as you have sent us out to be ambassadors, Lord, Lord, we commit to you right now to not give in to all those unbiblical wrong feelings and emotions. Lord, we choose right now to say we have, you've given us a job, you've given us a place in the body. Lord, we're not going to listen to those lies that say, well, I, I'm not important, I'm not meaningful, I'm not useful. Lord, we're going to reject those things and rest in what you say. And we're going to step out in faith to minister to one another and to minister to the lost. God, we desperately need your help in that. So fill us with your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.